Who were Charles Cannon and Norman Cotter? And why were they sent to Omaha Beach with the greatest urgency on the morning of D-Day? Turns out, they were the only two men who could break the bloody stalemate that had afflicted Omaha since dawn. Welcome to Season 3 of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton, and today we're returning to the terrible killing fields of Omaha Beach. In an earlier episode of Unknown History, we heard how the first wave of American troops to land on Omaha were massacred by the German defenders. Hardly a single man who landed in the first wave was to survive. So what happened next, and how did American troops finally win the beach? It's a story of courage and leadership, and it begins on USS Augusta, anchored offshore from Omaha. Pacing the bridge of the ship and gravely anxious was General Omar Bradley, General Eisenhower's principal American commander on D-Day. Bradley was a worried man. The few reports he'd received from the beach suggested that the assault on Omaha was turning into a huge-scale catastrophe. Privately, he said, I considered evacuating the beachhead and directing the follow-up troops to Utah Beach or the British beaches. But he knew that evacuation was logistically impossible and that a diversion of troops would wreck the entire invasion plan. It would also condemn those already on the beach to certain death. It was in this moment of desperation that Bradley chose to deploy two of his most formidable weapons, Norman Cotter and Charles Cannum were to be dispatched to Omaha Beach with the unenviable task of saving the landing from catastrophe. Cotter was a brigadier general, Cannum a colonel, but their ranks were only partly relevant to everything that was to follow. More crucially, both were tried and tested leaders accustomed to getting their way. Colonel Cannum was the more unusual of the two. A fiery old guy who spat fire and brimstone, said one. Another said he was a tough son of a bitch, tall and lanky, had a thin little moustache, like a villain in a movie. Cannum's comrade in arms was Norman Cotter. Fifty-one years of age and with thinning hair, he was an old man leading a young man's game. There was something of the outlaw about Cotter. He champed on an unlit cigar even when under fire and had perfected the art of swinging a pistol on his index finger. He'd driven his men hard and vowed to lead from the front. His men were known as the Bastard Brigade. He was the Bastard-in-Chief. Cotter had warned his men that Omaha was going to be a nightmare. You're going to find confusion, he said. The landing craft aren't going in on schedule or people aren't going to be landed in the right place. Some won't be landed at all. We must improvise, carry on, not lose our heads. Norman Cotter and Charles Cannum rode to the beach in the same landing craft, accompanied by a group of officers. Cannum leapt ashore under heavy gunfire, charging up the shingle like some fiery Chicago gangster with a .45 pistol in one hand and an automatic rifle in the other. Get your ass out of there, he screamed at men lying paralysed on the shingle. What are you doing there, laying there like that? Get up, get across the rest of this goddamn beach. One colonel, hiding inside an abandoned German pillbox, yelled a warning at Cannum. Colonel, if you don't take cover, you're going to get killed. Colonel! Cannum screamed back. Get your goddamn ass out of that goddamn pillbox and get these men off this goddamn beach! His words proved an inspiration to the men following in his wake. Goddamn, thought one of them. If that guy can do that, then hell, I can too. 
Norman Cotter joined Canham at the Sea Wall and made a rapid assessment of the chaotic situation. Corpses lay all around, intermingled with mutilated body parts, and the beach was cluttered with crippled trucks and jeeps. We've got to get the men off the beach, said Cotter. We've got to get them moving. A few hundred yards along the beach, a young ranger named John Rahn was astonished to see the fearless Cotter chewing on his unlit cigar as he urged the men to advance. He approached Cotter and clipped a salute. Captain Rahn, 5th Ranger Infantry Battalion, sir! You men are rangers, exclaimed Cotter with evident glee. I know you won't let me down. He then turned to the men around him and shouted four words of such resonance that they'd be later adopted as the motto of these fighting heroes. Rangers, lead the way. Within seconds, John Rahn and his comrades managed to blow gaps in the German barbed wire and began advancing towards the cliffs. Colonel Cannon was also leading from the front, despite his injuries. His arm was in a makeshift splint and his battle dress was smeared with blood as shrapnel had gone through both his cheeks. He spouted blood as he talked, said one, but he didn't seem to mind it. He'd by now advanced to the foot of the cliff where he established a temporary command post. Shellfire continued to burst all around him, flinging high-velocity shrapnel in all directions. Those shards were lethal, as one soldier was to witness. One of the fragments striking a man in the small of his back almost completely severed the upper portion of his body from his trunk. The rangers had taken Norman Cotter at his word and were by now beginning to scramble up the crumbling cliffs, knocking out trenches and machine gun nests as they advanced. Individual bravery counted for everything that morning. Harry Parley had landed in the first wave of infantry and was in a bad state, as he put it, soaking wet, shivering, but trying like hell to keep control. He'd seen half his friends blown to shreds and, as he said, could feel the cold fingers of fear grip me. Yet he was to perform one of those countless unsung actions that swung the balance on Omaha that morning. A burst of machine gun fire alerted him to the presence of two concealed bunkers. I crawled forward, circled wide and came down between the bunkers and destroyed them both with grenades in the gun slots. It was a miracle he wasn't killed. As the rangers advanced, bedraggled Germans began to emerge from foxholes with their hands up. It was the first sign that Hitler's Atlantic Wall was starting to crumble. Inch by terrifying inch, they scaled the cliffs, taking horrific casualties as they advanced. The leadership of Cannon and Cotter had broken the stalemate on the beach, and small parties were starting to make it to the clifftop. Yet the assault was hopelessly behind schedule, and the beach was a logjam of charred wreckage and burned-out tanks. It was the naval vessels that tipped the balance in the Americans' favour. Offshore from Omaha, Allied ships began hurling vast quantities of explosives at the exposed cliffs. USS Carmack, Thompson, Texas, Frankfurt, Harding and Baldwin, along with many others, kept up a sustained barrage of highly destructive five-inch shells. They were firing at such a rate that their guns were glowing red hot. We had to hook up one and a half inch fire hoses to hydrants to spray water on our gun mount, said one. Some of the gunfire was remarkably accurate, with gunners managing to land shells inside German beach bunkers. They were aided in their work by a group of radio operators who'd landed with Cannon and Cotter. As these radio operators inched their way up the cliffs, they were able to give coordinates of the German positions to the naval gunners offshore. It was one of the few instances on D-Day where the wireless communications actually worked. As the men reached the top of the cliffs, they hoped their woes would be at an end. 
But now they found themselves coming under intense German mortar fire, and they were in real danger of being pushed back over the edge. And this is where Norman Cotter once again proved his worth. He rallied the men and personally led them on a charge across the field, instructing them to fire at the hedgerows and houses as they advanced. Leading from the front, he proved that nowhere was a no-go area, just as long as you had enough firepower. The men soon found themselves on the country lane that led to the village of Vierville-sur-Mer, where the snipers inside the church had just been knocked out by the guns of USS Harding. Cotter and Canham had a rendezvous at the crossroads outside Vierville and agreed on a new plan of action. Their leadership had enabled them to get the men off the beach. Now they had to lead them into Vierville and beyond. It was vital that the village was both captured and secured. Cotter was to lead from the front for much of that long day. When one group of soldiers entered Vierville, they were greeted by a sight that left them blinking in disbelief. General Cotter was standing in the centre of the town, calmly twirling his pistol on his finger. He looked like an outlaw cowboy who'd ridden in from the Wild West. Where the hell have you been, boys? were his first words of greeting. For these exhausted men, the capture of Vierville felt like a second Yorktown. It may have been a one-horse, one-cart sort of place, but it was a key prize, and it had only fallen into their hands after a desperate fight up the cliffs. Soon after, the first jeeps and tanks began to roar up the tracks that led from the beach to the clifftop villages. It was a sign that bloody Omaha was finally in American hands. There would be many more firefights before the day was over, and many more Americans would be killed, but the worst of the Omaha nightmare was finally over. One of the brave individuals who'd fought a running battle up the cliffs was young Jack Ellery. As he clambered ever higher and saw a handful of others doing the same, he was struck by a thought that would remain with him for years to come. The day's fighting owed nothing to the decorated generals and chiefs of staff, but everything to the heroic individuals in the lesser ranks. True courage is found in those who believe there are things in life that are worth fighting for and worth dying for. You can't buy valour and you can't pull heroes off an assembly line. Ellery was one of those American heroes. Without men like him, the battle for Omaha would never have been won. This week's Unknown History Snippet takes up the story of the brave medics who risked their lives to save others on D-Day. One of these medics was Treadwell Ireland, a 30-year-old physician with the 3rd Auxiliary Surgical Group. Ireland was part of a seven-strong medical team whose task was to perform surgery on the battlefield. In his first few hours on Omaha Beach, surgery was out of the question. Ireland and his fellow medics were pinned down on the sand. But by mid-afternoon, they'd captured one of the German bunkers and turned it into a medical post. Their principal handicap was a lack of medical supplies. They'd lost much of their equipment in the landing and had little except morphine, plasma and dressings, along with some penicillin. They nevertheless set to work in the near darkness, stitching wounds, extracting shrapnel and staunching blood. Their work was made all the harder when they came under aerial attack from a lone Messerschmitt with a huge bomb falling next to the entrance of the bunker. The blast was so powerful that it knocked Ireland off his feet and sent great clouds of sand billowing into the pillbox. 
The bunker was soon overflowing with casualties carried down from the cliff tops above. There were men with suppurating wounds, with severe burns, with lacerated skin. It was exhausting work, yet Ireland and his fellow medics worked throughout the day in appalling conditions. It was thanks to their heroic and often unsung efforts that so many Allied soldiers were saved from certain death on D-Day. Well, that brings us to the end of this third series of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I do hope you've enjoyed them. If you'd like to know more about the book on which the podcast is based, then do visit my website, www.gilesmilton.com. And thanks for listening.